This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the place where myself and a fascinating guest fill our boots with fine food and even finer conversation. Today I'm joined by someone I greatly admire. I've seen her perform a number of times in musical theatre, including the recent Caroline or Change, which was just about to open on Broadway as COVID hit New York. She's won three Olivier Awards and been nominated for a bunch more for her theatre work and starred in countless TV shows, including Doctor Who and as Lola in Holby City. Our food delivery was courtesy of Soul Ride by the Riding House Cafe in London who sent a marvellous selection of Caribbean-inspired food. And I am not exaggerating when I say my guest was whooping with joy when she opened her food packages. It's the amazing singer, actress and musical theatre star, Sharon D. Clark. Do the confession. We will rock you. Utterly baffled me. (laughs) (laughs) I was expecting you to say that. Hello, Sharon. How lovely to, to meet and you. And you too. Now, this isn't a food podcast, but food is involved. And we ask you whether you have any allergies, mm. likes and dislikes. You sent back a very specific set of dislikes. Yes. Nuts and pulses. And the one that really caught my attention was okra. Slimy. Don't like it. Now, here's the question. You've said that your mum, terrific cook, mm. Jamaican. Mm. Did she ever try to cook okra for you? Or did you discover this hatred elsewhere? I discovered this hatred elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not blaming Mama. We're no, not, not blaming Mum. Mum never cooked okra. I don't think she liked it either, but she was really great. She, If she didn't like something, she never not gave it to me because she didn't like it. So she didn't eat lamb. She couldn't like the, didn't like the smell of it, didn't like the taste of it, but cooked lamb for me, tried me with it, saw I like it and cooked it for me. So right. she was a great, a great food lover and a great advocate of trying everything. Do you know what I mean? There wasn't, I'm not one of these kids that I only eat Caribbean food. I only eat, I eat everything across the board. The nuts and pulses thing is a textural thing. I'm not is allergic. It? It's how it feels in my mouth. Well, so that's... it's a weird thing. Like I don't do chickpeas, but I love hummus. <laughs> okay. Well, I have to admit, I've taken a chance with you in that I have gone Caribbean. Oh, cool. Uh, uh, yeah, I've gone for gone for the islands, not Jamaica. We'll see when it when it turns up. All right. Okay. I, know, I know food is a really big big thing for you. I um, I saw a, a a very warm conversation between you and Wendell Pierce, your co star oh, in Death of a Salesman. I love that man. And he says to you, if you could be nominated for something non theatrical, what what would it be? And you look wistful and you say, the ability to put on a feast. My mum's thing was always on her birthday, she'd go, this year we'll feast. <laughs> and we feasted every year. My mum worked from home, but a lot of my school friends at that time, you know, they were latchkey kids. And so everyone would pile through my house and there'd be kids going through the fridge because my mum was like, don't be asking. Just so food has always played a really big part in my family. As we said, uh, the night that your episode of Doctor Who the moment that performance turned up, it turned out that there was a great crossover in my friend group between Whovians, the Doctor Who fans in their 40s and 50s. Mm, oh, yes, yes. 
and people who were on the rave scene in the early 90s. <laughs> and they went nuts. <laughs> and they went absolutely nuts. Um, I remember a, a friend of mine, Andrew Harrison, who's been editor of Mix Mag and some of the biggest dance mm. mags going. And he went... Oh, oh my God! That's 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 the woman from Nomad, Nomad. Devotion. How? So, for anybody who doesn't know, this was this was a a real hit dance single, ninety one. I want to say, yeah, ninety one. We 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 made it to number two in the charts, held off only by Do the Bartman, which was number one. <laughs> how how did that happen? Were you part of that scene, or was it just someone said, "Oh, we need a singer to." Um, who's got real chops to do this line? Well, there's a, a, a guy called Damon Rushfor who is family. He's my brother. Um, my mum, when my mum met him, she started calling him First Fruit and took him <laughs> under her wing. And he's been my brother. I've known Damon since I was 18. Right. And he, back when I was 18, Damon was looking for a singer and he'd been talking to Juliet Roberts. And who was, what was, it, what was the group Juliet was in? I think it was Weekend or something. I can't remember. My brain is so bad now. The memory gone. But um, Juliet couldn't do it. And she recommended me to Damon. And we met. And that was it. Relationship, partnership was formed. And we'd been making music for, for quite a while. And Devotion was something that we did in the studio. Knocked it out. And then I went back up to Manchester because I was at the Octagon. And then I got a call from Damon going the song's a hit and you've got to come down and do Top of the Pops. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm in the middle of a show. And what happened was it was Arista at the time and they bought out the theatre for that night so that I could come down and do Top of the Pops. They bought every ticket in the house. They bought every ticket in the house. It was that important to them that I come down and do Top of the Pops. Anybody who doesn't know, look up Devotion by Nomad. It's still a cracking tune. <laughs> I'm curious about the beginnings because you go off to college and study to be a social worker. Mm -hmm. Given the impression was your parents saying, get a profession. What yeah. they said to me was, get something as a backup uh -huh. that you love. Right. And for me, the, the only other thing that was a real driving passion was people. And so I trained to be a social worker and I literally got my qualifications on the Friday and started working as an actor on the Monday. There was a job going at Battersea Arts Centre. I applied for the job, it was Jude Kelly, and Jude set me on my way. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, Jude Kelly more recently has been running the whole of the South Bank. Yeah. So I've got a bike outside, which means you should be having one very, very soon. Are you near the doorbell? Okay. You can, you, you'll hear it if it I rings. will hear the doorbell. We've got, my sister got me this mad doorbell for my birthday and it plays about a hundred different tunes. Oh, there it goes. Hang on. Excellent. I don't know if you can hear that. You can't. <laughs> Merciful. For oh, wow. Okay. Let me tell you about your lunch. So there is a place, you may just know it, right? Because I'm sure you've done stuff at the uh, Broadcasting House, mm -hmm. the BBC. Around the back is a restaurant called the Riding House Cafe on Riding House Street, obviously. And they have just started a new thing, which is called Soul Ride by Riding mm. House. The two chefs, I always like to give them their names, uh, Henry yes. Omorea and Martin Kenu. I, I know that Henry spent a lot of time in Barbados where he was head chef right. at the Cliff Beach Club. So they've done food from the islands. Um, 
So you've got grilled cauliflower with cauliflower and plantain salsa, green sauce, coconut and lime yoghurt. Oh. There should be salt cod fritters there yes. with a Bayesian pepper sauce. Those are your starters. I had Bayesian to avoid a couple of things because there was okra in them. But I've got All them. Right. And I've got the wings. Chicken got, wings? Uh, chicken wings, yeah. I love chicken wings. Oh, I'm sorry. I, oh, I thought I'd mix it all up. Why did you take away my chicken wings? I didn't take away your chicken wings, Sharon D. Clark. I was just trying to make sure you got a cross-section of the menu. Yes, but, and uh, chicken wings would have been a good cross-section. <laughs> Never mind. I'll pick that up with you another time, Jay. Another oh, time. I've, I've right, screwed then. up already. Sort of. Henry sent a note saying, uh, we've thrown in a bottle of Henry's hot, hot sauce. Oh, I'm excited. And then mutton chops with green sauce, coconut and lime <gasps> yoghurt, crispy new potatoes with chilli. I think they've thrown in a sole burger as well. I was working yes. on the basis that your your other half, your wife Susie, is there as well. So, you know, she's going to want to feed. So get into get into whichever you decide, whether it's the cauliflower or the salt cod fritters. Did your, did your mum ever do anything with salt cod? It's quite oh, a Jamaican gosh, yes. thing as well. Yes, yes, yes. Mummy's saltfish fritters. Mm. <laughs> Just, I miss them. I really miss her saltfish fritters. She's gone. But the taste still lingers in my mouth. So. The, the singing voice that you've got, which is magnificent. Yes. I saw you in Caroline or Change. I was quite a way back in the stalls and blimey is all I can say. Where did the voice come from? Was, that, was singing always a thing in your house? Did your mum sing? Did your dad sing? My mum sang. My dad used to tell me stories of being in Jamaica and listening to my mum practising in the valley, just throwing her voice and this, this sound ringing round. But she had um, a fantastic soprano voice. And when we went back to Jamaica in 96, I went to her old school and saw some of the cups that she'd won as a young, as a young woman. So yeah, my mum was the singer in the family for me. She was my first vocal coach. She kind of knew that I, I had that love and was, I think, really pleased that I could sing. And I, it was something that I wanted to do. So yeah, that was, that was my mum. Oh, it's a magnificent her. voice. Um, Thank you. It's, it's... It's chest and diaphragm and head as well. You and uh, you slip between the two superbly. I always say um, that I visit the high notes. I'm, I'm not a soprano <laughs> by any shape or form. I'm a contralto, and in fact, I'd go as far as saying I usually sing with the men, so I'd kind of call myself a tenor. My voice is low, always has been low. If I call anybody in the morning, the first thing I get is, how can we help you, sir? And when I say my name is Sharon, they still say, yes, sir. So it's, it's fine. So I've, you know, I was one of these girls that grew up with everybody singing high. And I had this really low voice. And one of the few people that I could sing along with as a kid was um, Sarah Vaughan. One of the greats. Mm. So, mm, the saltfish fritters are good. Mm. So are my wings. I won't mention them much because you'll just be furious with me. And I don't You're want lucky that. I got these saltfish fritters, man. They're nice. <laughs> When you turned up at Battersea and, and thereafter, was race an issue for you? Were there many people who looked like you in the world in which you were moving? When I started, actually, yes, was more when I got into the West End, when you kind of get into the bigger institutions that I was usually the only black face in the room at that point. So by the institutions, you, do you mean places like the National and things yeah, like that? Yeah, big, bigger theatres and West End. How did that feel? Was it alienated or did you think, I can, I can just do this? I've got to do it. Someone's got to be here to represent. I just got used to it. And still now, I mean, I've done some things on Zoom lately where I'm still the only black person. And then there are other things that really diverse, nice cross-section, black, Asian, Chinese, whatever. That's slowly coming more and more, more and more forward. I remember when I 
went to my first Olivier's, which was in 95. As black people, it was only me and Adrian Lester in the room. Which is outrageous, isn't it? Yeah. The, the Black Lives Matter movement, it's, it's really hard. I find, it, I find it so hard that we are now having conversations because another black man was killed. Yeah. Rather than just having the conversation because the conversation has been needed to be had for so long. And so one part of me is really hopeful that we have change and we have a dialogue and the BBC at the moment are now talking about what it is to be a person of colour working in, in that institution. When you say to someone about hair and makeup, it doesn't seem like such a big issue. But That's huge. But it's, it's massive when you walk in and someone doesn't know how to deal with your hair, looks at you in horror or immediately comes with a neon palette and wants to fling yellows and pinks on your eyes. And it's just like, hang on. And we're slowly getting there. It's brilliant because it feels that we are now moving on and we are being heard. You were in Holby City for quite a while, um, mm. quite a few years. Did you have to train up the makeup department there? They probably won't like hearing this, but some of them, yeah. Some people, knowing their business, have done their research and can deal with your hair, can deal with your makeup. Some people, you kind of have to school them. It's like, it's nice that you're being creative, but I'm not your palette experiment. I'm actually playing the character, so it's not about you seeing how your colours that you've got from Mac work. It's, <laughs> what works, it's like what works for the character. Do you of course. That kind of thing. I mean, even the at the time, casting a black person as a consultant in a British medical drama was seen as somewhat radical. And I was so happy. I stopped doing telly and stopped auditioning for it because... I got fed up of playing a nurse and a nurse who had maybe a couple of speaking lines, but nothing more. And so to, to be offered a consultant who had an opinion, who had some authority, who was ballsy, <laughs> bull in a china shoppy, but heart of gold. It was the kind of woman that when I was growing up, I wanted to see that person on telly. When I was growing up, there was Derek Griffiths, Floella Benjamin, and the young boy who was in Pippin, uh, whose name I can't remember. But that was it. And other than that, it was people running away from police in um, Crime Watch or serving in Mickey D's in an advert. So to, to come across and see more diversity now is, is a joyous thing for me. And to play someone like Lola was just glorious. And I was in Nottingham doing Once on This Island, and the woman came up to me and said, because of you and your character, my daughter is now studying to be a doctor because she saw herself. And I was like, wow, that's, that's my job done. Uh, how are you doing with your starters? Do you want to have a look at your main course? Oh, I've, I've dipped into a little crispy potato. What's my, what's my main? Mutton chops. Oh, look at that chop, beautifully cooked. Sauce for mutton. Here I am with a few of these little crispy potato. Oh, deep I haven't got into those. Oh, wow. Exactly. Right. Well, I've got the mutton stew, um, which I didn't send to you because of the okra in it, and I didn't want to. No, that's get on. fine. That's fine. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I'd love to talk to you about the Hackney Empire. Yes, yes. Which is, I know, a very, very important part of your life. Yes, um, yes. You and your wife, Susie, met there. What, 20? Well, no, we, did, we didn't meet there, uh-huh. but we worked there. Susie had asked me to do the panto the year before, and I couldn't do it. And then I did it in 99. It was Cinderella. I was a very godmother. She directed, wrote it, produced it, and played Dandini. So I was already a bit in love with all the power. Right. Okay. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. And then, and and then we fell in love on that show, and have been together ever since. Was that straightforward with your with your mum and dad? By the time I got to Susie, it was straightforward. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't their first rodeo. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. When I first came out, yeah, it was absolute hell. Whole generational thing, cultural thing, wasn't good. My dad was actually quite cool. It was like, as long as you're happy, that's okay. But my mum didn't get her head around it for a long while, actually. We didn't speak for three years. That must have been tough. It, it, was, it was really tough. It was really, really hard. But, yeah. So, <laughs> I'm just going back in there. But oh, Sorry, um, darling. The night my dad passed away, that was the, one of the first phone calls I got from my mum. And she, she rang me and just said, get here quick. So, when my dad passed, I moved back home to be with my mum. And our relationship just blossomed again. We'd always been close. Well, I say when I first moved back, it was hell (laughs) because it was two women living together with completely different rules. I'd been moved out of the house, I'd been living my own life. And we kind of argued a lot. But by the time Susie met us, we'd, we'd mellowed. We'd mellowed and our relationship was just joyous and close and she'd come everywhere and do everything and was always part of my life. And all my family and friends have always known that my mum would always be there and that she was a firm fixture at Hackney. She used to call Hackney Susie's church. That's your church. You go to your church now. And she, she loved it at Hackney. She was very, very proud of Susie and the work that she was doing there. I've been in the audience for two of your shows. One uh, I wrote about, and I have to confess, there's confession coming. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one I didn't. So should I do the confession bit first? Do the confession. I don't think I'm alone in this. I was sent to write a piece for the Observer newspaper on three jukebox musicals. Well, a jukebox musical being a musical based on a collection of songs by the same band or oh, artist. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay. I know okay. So Mamma Mia was one of them, which I loved. Tonight's the Night, which was the Rod Stewart musical, which I didn't love. And the other one was We Will Rock You, which utterly baffled me. (laughs) (laughs) I was expecting you to say that. (laughs) Yes, you were baffled? (laughs) I I was somewhat baffled. I love Queen. Absolutely love Queen. 
And I couldn't get my head around the narrative, the shape, the form that had been... The narrative? Oh, actually, this is good. Sharon, perhaps you could describe the narrative of We Will Rock You. I you mean, want a... me to describe it? <laughs> Do you? Um, oh, gosh. In a nutshell, me no know. What was happening? <laughs> oh, young people running away from major institution, which was what, Global Soft at the time. Killer Queen has done away with music and they have to find the music again. I think that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, and you are the Killer Queen. I was Killer um, Queen, yes. I, I loved playing Killer Queen. I loved um, her costumes. And it, as we said, that when it ran, it didn't necessarily get the fondest response from the critics, that one. Oh, fondest. It was panned, baby. <laughs> it was, Absolutely panned. I was panned. one of them. I was one of them. No, and, feel no way. Feel no way. I mean, uh, I, when, when, when we got up and running, I think we'd been two weeks in, yeah. and people were saying, oh, we've heard you're getting your notice. We're like, well, no one's told us. <laughs> what do you mean we're getting a notice? Actually, what's, what saved the show was doing um, the Queen's Jubilee. So when Brian was on the roof doing... Brian um, May playing his guitar on the top of Buckingham Palace for the 50th. Yeah, glorious. And then I think when, when the cast did Bohemian Rhapsody, I think people saw that the music was being faithfully done and it, it was, was being done by people who could actually sing it. But So I think the, the people who love Queen and the fans of the music... We're like, we're going to be okay because the music's going to be fine. And, and that's, that's really what got yeah. us through. It should, be, it should be said that regardless of what snooty bastards like me might have said about various elements, it ran for 12 years at the Dominion. Is that right? 12 years, my darling. And How long were you shows in Shows all over the world. I did two years. I'm assuming at the point we got to lockdown early last year, there would still have been productions running somewhere around yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Didn't you also have to wear some really fantastic... I, I seem to remember stack shoes, really high boots. We've been doing, as many people have been doing over lockdown, is doing some yeah. clear out. Well, you've still got them. I've got a whole bag full. Because they made fantastic boots for me. And I've got about five different boots. And I'm a Bigfoot girl. Do you know what I mean? I'm a size nine. So shoes is not easy to find. So ready-made to measure, beautiful boots. I've kept them all and they are glorious, my darling. And the minute I can go somewhere and wear them, I'll be in them. Why not? <laughs> I think you should. Um, the other one, which I didn't write about just because everybody had already written about it and it was amazing, was Caroline or Change, which oh. was a, uh, an amazing piece. Tony Kushner wrote the, wrote the book. Um, Janine Tesori score we should describe what it is it's a story from the american south i think 1963 about yeah. a housekeeper caroline who has to adapt possibly to what's going on around her in the deep mm. south the show is set against the backdrop of the shooting of kennedy and um the civil rights era blossoming caroline has four children her eldest daughter emmy She's, she's, she's part of the new generation that are moving away from being called coloured and Negro, calling herself black. She's going on marches. For someone like Caroline, who's not that far from lynching and that, the Jim Crow laws and all of that, it's very, it's very frightening for her to see her daughter put in herself in that kind of situation. The, the, the change bit, little Noah, who is her charge in the Jewish household, he's always leaving money in his pockets and his stepmother says to him if you keep leaving money in your pockets I'm going to say that Caroline can take them it's what that does to her 
the emasculation of this woman who, although it's affording her stuff, her family depend on the change of an eight-year-old child. So what that does to her psyche. Yeah, it's a simple story. And some people said, well, you know, a friend of mine came to see it and she said that she was sat behind two women in Chichester and she just heard one woman say to the other woman, well, I, I don't really understand it. I mean, it's, it's just a show about black people in the 60s. Oh, and I thought, God, you've missed the point. So it started at Chichester, the Chichester Festival yeah. Theatre, went to uh, Hampstead. Hampstead. And then, and and then, then into town. To and I, I saw it at the Playhouse. Um, what I think is really fascinating about Caroline or Change is that as the world has been happening the way it's been happening, its relevancy just seems to keep getting stronger and stronger. The week that we opened in Chichester was the week of Charlottesville riots. And so the show has continued to kind of go in step with what's happening in the world. So by the time we get to Broadway, hopefully in September, the commentary on what has been happening will be even stronger. You were, were, were you not in New York in March in rehearsals to open in Broadway? We were just about to do our first dress run Three o'clock or five o'clock, we got the news just before we were about to do the dress run that Broadway was closing down. At that point, they'd said to me, we think it might be three or four weeks. And I was thinking, oh, three or four weeks in New York. I can hang. I can do that. That was all cool. Susie had come over on the Wednesday. She was supposed to be flying back on the Tuesday. On the Sunday, the travel ban to the UK was introduced. We went to look at Susie's flight. Disappeared, gone in the ether, cancelled, nobody said anything. It was at that point that I went, babe, we've got to go home. So we managed to get a flight on the Monday. And we think we've got probably at that time the last American Airlines flight that was coming out. Because we know that my friend Charles, who was working on something at the Young Vic, he flew back on that flight that we came in on. And, you know, we came home and we started self-isolating immediately because we'd all gone to a bar in Midtown. And then when we got back, we were like, hang on, we've been in Midtown, in the middle of COVID, in a tiny, tiny bar. We've got to self-isolate. So we started self-isolating. When did we get back? I think it was the 17th of March. So we've been isolating since then. Would that have been your first time on Broadway? Or had you done yes, Broadway before? that would have been my Broadway debut. Well, it will come and again. it will still be my Broadway. Listen, I have every faith. I'm really lucky. When Broadway closed down, there were some shows that are not going to come back. Do you know what I mean? That's it. But they're talking about the show going on. So I know I have that to go back to. But, you know, as much as I want to go back into the theatre, as much as I want to be in the room and creating in that way, it has got to be safe. Yeah, yeah. Would you like to move on to dessert? Oh, or gosh. You... Yes, yes. I've left a chop. That chop was delicious. <laughs> Soul Ride, I'm going fine you. In fact, I hope you deliver. Well, they do. Yeah, they deliver. do. And they're also doing meal kits, um, nationally delivered. That so. is my thing now. I love a meal kit. Whose have you had? Cyrus? Tadiwala? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I'm not sure what they've done for you. I've got both sweet cinnamon sugar crusted dumplings, which I think is where I'm going. And also pancakes. Sweet dumplings. All right, go for the sweet dumplings. The pancakes are almost cake-like, but I'm I'm afraid I'm, I'm looking at the dumplings. They look beautiful. And then I've got a lovely little pot of marshmallows and bananas, which I think you've got too. Sorry, I'm just finding my pancakes, people. Ooh! Oh, they're lovely and fluffy. Yeah, and my dumplings are... And they come with... There's a little pot for the dumplings, but I'm sure you could put them... Cream. Cream yeah. for the dumplings. One, the, the other... 
recent pieces of yours is the brilliant reworking of Death of a Salesman, taken out of the Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman, originally about a Jewish family, but reimagined mm. as an African-American family by um, Marianne Elliott and it was second director. Miranda right? Cromwell. That's it. When you were told about the idea originally, you know, we're going to shift this totemic piece of American theatre... I'd say my late father once said it was the only play he'd ever actually cried in, wept in the theatre when he was in the audience. Um, They said, we're going to move it. It's going to be an African-American family. What was your response to that? Absolute joy. (laughs) Absolute joy, because it made sense. That thing of not doing colourblind casting, Mm -hmm. but actually setting the family in the time. And all the research was done... We had a wonderful woman, Dr. Nicole King, who came with with lots of videos and books and texts that talked to us about the sort of middle-class African-American at that time, that they would have owned cars, not many, but a few. He could have been a traveling salesman going through all of those times. I think putting an African-American family in that situation heightened, deepened, and enriched Arthur Miller's text. And you could really see what he was talking about because everything was just so glaringly obvious. Also, as black actors getting a chance to get our teeth around that classic text, if someone hadn't thought out of the box, we'd never get a chance. You've said that men need to see women in strong roles. What did you mean by that? I think it's really, really important. Well, I I just think if you look at how women have been seen through society through the ages, have always been delicate or feeble-minded or not not strong-minded, not independent, not not able. I was just thinking about something like Bridgerton, which we're both talking about, how the women are seen there, that they're not capable of doing anything for themselves. The reality of strong women has not actually been around for that long. Do you know what I mean? Most of history is dealing with women as being left in a dark corner or, you know, just the maid or that. The idea of strong women is a relatively new concept in the timescale of mankind. So I think we need to keep banging on about that in in a way. And also it's really important for young girls to see strong women, to have that kind of, that role model of being able to fulfil their complete and utter potential. When I met with Marianne and we were, um, we were talking about Death of a Salesman and, and how she wanted to go about the role, one of the things I said to her was, I really love the idea of doing this, but I won't, can't play Linda as this woman who sits in the back and, and let, lets it all happen around her and she can't do anything about it. Because every time I'd seen it on film, and I think the one time I saw it on stage, I always got this feeling that Linda wasn't able to do anything because she had no strength, she had no voice, she had no say. She has to have some strength. And that was my most important thing. The fact that that came across, I'm really proud of that. Because winning the Olivier for it... (laughs) kind of really blew my mind because she's always been a supporting character. She's never seen as the, a lead in it. I'm 
kind of glad that a new generation look on that character in a different way, that she's not this put-upon woman, but she's actually someone who sends her men out in the best way that she can. Well, you talk about strong women. This might seem like a, a particularly facetious response to that, but mm. Pink News, the Pink News did suggest that the next Doctor Who should be you. Did they? You. Yes, they did. Did they? <laughs> yeah. I love them for that. <laughs> what do you reckon? Chris, Chris Chibnall, you're listening? Chris, listen up. I'd love it. <laughs> That's the producer of, uh, the current producer of Doctor Who. When I took on Doctor Who and knew that I was going to die, I was a bit like, oh, because I really wanted to be going off into those worlds. And I think someone like Grace, who immediately just took all of that on board and ran with it, wasn't afraid that there were aliens and doing all that kind of stuff. I just think she would have loved going around the galaxy. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm, I'm up for that. I really I, am up for that. If they are looking at a black overweight Doctor Who, I'll be there. <laughs> Give her a uh, different slant. <laughs> now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this full circle. In November of 2019, while you were doing Death of a Salesman, in the way of our underloved London West End theatres, part of the ceiling collapsed during one of the oh, performances. Oh, baby. Yes, yes. Did you go back into social worker mode? That bit of you which looks after people and talks to people and yeah. that night, is that what yeah. happened? Totally, totally. It was just like, I mean, like we were side of the stage. We heard the screams and we thought at first that something had happened to the two boys on stage. When we saw that they were right and it was all happening in the audience, we just wanted to, to get out and see if people were okay. So Wendell and I did go outside just to see how the audience were. And Wendell, fantastic orator, gave a beautiful speech and chatted to the people and told them everything was going to be all right. Yeah, I just, is everybody okay? <laughs> is anybody hurt? <laughs> you know? When the ceiling came down at the Piccadilly, it had been the rain. So he had just gotten through a little crack and t dealt with that particular bit of the ceiling. So it wasn't a big, major overhaul. Yeah. It, it was a, a bit of the ceiling above the uh, the Royal Circle, wasn't it? Yeah. Right at the top, right yeah. the gods. Yeah. Um, so I have to ask you, obviously, Caroline will change, Broadway. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, any advance on the musical written by Quincy Jones? Do we know? Where, has that happened yet, Sharon? Uh, I don't know what Quincy's been doing because he's, he's taking his time. <laughs> he's taking his time getting back to me. But Quincy, I'm here, baby, and I'm ready. Whatever musical you're going to write and fling me in, I am there. So just just get writing, baby. Use this lockdown time to write and start out a beautiful Quincy Jones score. That, that would be just, just joyous. I'd love that. All that remains for me to say is, Sharon D. Clark, thank you so much for staying in for lunch with me. Um, it has been an absolute joy. And when we get through this and I ever get to see you, you're going to get the biggest squeeze, my darling. Because I'm, I'm there for it. I'm absolutely there myself. for it. Excellent. <laughs> well, that's the whole idea. Thank you so much. Absolute blessings, my darling. I simply cannot wait for that squeeze and to hear that magnificent voice at full throttle again. Sharon D. Clark is an absolute ray of sunshine. Um, thank you to Chef Patron Henry Omarea and Chef Martin Canu from Riding House Cafe for the feast. Do look them up online. And if you like this episode and want more, please follow us, rate us, comment and share with everyone you know. Give us five stars. You know, it makes sense. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was 
was Gulliver Tickle and the mix engineer was John Scott. Jemima Rathbone was assistant producer. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, it's stand-up comedian, writer and director, Stuart Lee. I'm going to have to rewrite half of the show when I have to fulfil the obligation of the last 50 dates. Half of it is a nostalgic look at the news of late 2019. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot, a lot has happened uh. since then. <laughs>